As they're heading back to their seats, let me invite you uh, to open up to the Gospel of Luke again today. We'll be in chapter 7 in just a few minutes. Again, this whole uh, season of Lent as we approach Easter, we're going to think about how Jesus eats, how Jesus interacts around tables with other people. And so many of you have um, signed up for a table group. Uh, again, as Paul shared at the beginning of the service, you should have heard um, from, from Paula or your, your table group host um, already this week. If you haven't, um, you can talk to me or find Paula this morning um, and, and follow up with that. But, but those, those plans should be getting underway. And I'm, I'm looking forward to those experiences the next three months. But I want us to think about uh, tables this morning, and I want us to think about tables or meals as places to see differently, places where we learn to see differently. And I thought I'd ask a question to start out this morning to those of you who wear glasses or contact lenses. How many of you guys have a prescription, an eye prescription of some kind? When was the last time you went for an eye examination, went to the optometrist, and you decided to stay and kind of linger after your appointment to share a meal or to share coffee with somebody there at the optometrist. Probably it's not a thing here in Vermont. But in, in the land of new concepts and new startups out in Silicon Valley, in the Bay Area, there is actually an eyeglasses shop that's become quite uh, popular in their community. And it, it's known not only for its kind of trendy and stylish lenses, but it also has numerous five-star reviews for its food. Uh, it's a place that has cupcakes and frozen yogurt and all of these desserts and coffee and tea. It's called Clear Optometry. And uh, in, a, in an interview, the owner of, of the practice, Dr. Catherine Chan, says that she had the idea to create a destination she said, an optical store that provides a comfortable backdrop to hanging out and also for meeting new people. She reports that on, this is just before COVID when the interview was done, on Friday and Saturday nights they stayed open until 10 p.m. and the place would be packed with people eating. And about 75% of their eyewear sales came from people who were there initially getting something to eat. And so the, the success of this concept that she's testing out depends upon whether she can meet two needs in one place, right? People have the need to get something to eat. They're, they're hungry. Maybe they have a need to, to socialize and hang out. But they also have the need to see clearly, to have their, their vision corrected. And that, again, it's not a very common uh, concept in, in our experience. But there may be, I think, something more to this idea than we first imagine. Maybe eating and seeing fit together in some significant ways. Again, this, this month, uh, right now, I think a little north of 70 people have signed up to do our, our table groups over Lent and Easter. And, and you've committed to the practice of eating together, of coming together and sharing a meal, both to satisfy your, your hunger, but also to socialize and to get to know one another. 
But I want us to also think about as we're coming together around those table spaces, if there's also an opportunity to have our, our vision checked at the same time. If, if something might also happen to our sight. And that's because as we read uh, today in Luke 7 about another meal that, that Jesus is a part of, I want us to look at how Jesus integrates these two things. How does he connect eating with seeing? As we look at this passage, how does Jesus connect eating and seeing? And how could the time that we spend with another person around a table actually enhance or, or challenge or clarify the accuracy of our perceptions about them. So let's open to Luke 7, starting in verse 36, and let me pray for us as we, as we study God's word. Lord Jesus, uh, we confess that we are both hungry people in need of sustenance. But we are also people who can be blind, whose perceptions and evaluations and judgments can be deceptive and false, clouded. Lord Jesus, we need your help to see you as you truly are. We need your help to see one another clearly. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would have that effect on us today. May the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're in Luke 7. And if, if uh, you've been following along through the readings uh, last week and this week, You'll know that, that Jesus is probably still up or maybe over in the village of Nain, N-A-I-N, Nain at this point. And, and Nain is this community uh, sort of west and south of the Sea of Galilee. It's not far from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. But at the beginning of chapter 7, when Jesus enters this village, he does something remarkable. Right, there's, there's a woman who has recently lost her son. She's also been widowed and lost her husband. And Jesus sees her in her, um, in her grief. And he touches the coffin that her son is in. And he is raised back to life again. And of course, that creates quite a stir and, and controversy um, and amazement in this, this small town. And while it's, it's clear that the crowds are, are drawn to what Jesus is doing and the miracles that he's working, we see an ongoing tension in Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees. And they're having a harder time making up their minds about what to do with Jesus. How do we evaluate this, this new person with these new powers and, and all, of, all of the things that surround him? They're trying to determine, is Jesus a prophet sent from God, or is Jesus some kind of imposter? How do we get to the bottom of that question? And so to, to sort that out, to, to get a, a better read on the situation, we're told that a man named Simon sin, sends a 
dinner invitation to Jesus to come to his home. That's where we pick up in verse 36. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. This is the second meal we're looking at together in Luke's gospel. And we saw, if you can remember back to last week in Luke 5, Jesus has already developed a reputation for eating with sinners. We looked last week at his meal in Levi, a tax collector's home, and the the controversy that that gets him into. But today, we, we see for the first time Jesus invited into a different kind of home, Today, he's invited to sit at a Pharisee's table. And it's safe to say that's going to be a different kind of experience. Anyone who who knew the Pharisees knew that an invitation to dinner in their home was one that, that was going to scrutinize every word, every action, right? You are going to be under the microscope because these are the, the leaders, the sort of reformers of Jesus's day. In, in the religious space of this village. I think in many ways, the invitation for Jesus to come to Simon's home is, is Simon's way of getting a closer look at Jesus. Right? He, at least to his credit, he doesn't dismiss Jesus, Jesus out of hand, but neither is he, is he ready to embrace or endorse what Jesus is about. So, so he's brought Jesus there, I think, probably to get enough data on Jesus so that he can make a proper judgment about his ministry and his mission. What box does Jesus belong in? Have you ever found yourself doing this same thing? Sizing someone up, collecting data points so that you know what box to put them in. Right, maybe it's been at a meal. Maybe it's sitting in a meeting with someone. Maybe it's at a party. Maybe right here in church. We make all of these little micro-evaluations. On the flip side, maybe you've also felt that experience directed back at you, right? That you're under the microscope of someone else. That your words, your actions are being scrutinized. And we we all have this tendency to sort people into categories so that we can better interpret them, better anticipate what they're going to do, 
and also decide how, how far are we going to let them into our world. And so it, this, I, I think, is probably Simon's game plan. But his game plan takes an unexpected turn starting in verse 37. Right? His goal is to isolate Jesus, focus on Jesus' behavior, Jesus' words, Jesus' actions. But as the banquet is beginning, they're probably in the courtyard of Simon's home, which is an, an outdoor space. It's sort of private, sort of public. People from the streets would be passing by. As the meal is getting underway, a woman walks into the space where the meal is, is being served. And it's not just any woman, it's a woman whose reputation, her sinful reputation, is, is part of the town's gossip. And Luke tells us that the entry of this woman into that space draws everyone's attention to her. In fact, it doesn't come across here in the NIV, but the first word in verse 37 is, uh, is ido, or kai ido, and behold, and look. Right? Lo and behold, this woman walks into the room. That's kind of how Luke tells the story. And all attention now is shifted away from Jesus and is on this woman. Why is she here? What's she going to do? And it's clear that, that Simon and his friends, being Pharisees, would not be enthusiastic about her presence there. But we see very quickly that this woman has not come to see Simon. She's not interested in his evaluation. It says that she's come with intention. She's come bearing this alabaster jar of expensive ointment. And it's her desire to give that as a gift to Jesus. And we don't get a lot of backstory here. We don't know. Maybe there was something that, that preceded this encounter, some interaction with Jesus. I think that's probably likely. But now she comes seeking Jesus out at this table in Simon's home. And if, her, if her, just her presence were not enough to make them uncomfortable, in verse 38, she begins doing things that make everyone there start to squirm, right? raises the temperature in the room. The first of those actions is that she begins to weep. And not, not just a little weeping, but, but weeping so uncontrollably that, that her tears are actually beginning to, to wet the feet of Jesus. Right? She's, she's sobbing, probably you know, in an uncontrollable manner whether from, from the heaviness of her heart and the burden that she carries, or maybe out of relief and joy and, and just the celebration of being next to Jesus, being close to him. She's overcome with emotion. But then seeing what she's done, seeing the result of her weeping, that she's, she's wet Jesus' feet, she's made a mess of the dust and mud on his feet, she begins to let down her hair. And that action alone would be outrageous to these Pharisees. Because the rabbis of Jesus' day taught that a woman was only to take her hair down in the presence of her husband. This was not considered appropriate behavior in a public setting. 
It was, it was scandalous. But she takes down her hair, and then we see that her intention is to use her hair to begin to wipe Jesus' feet clean, to wipe the tears from them. And as she cleans them, then she begins to kiss his feet. And she begins to take the ointment from that alabaster jar and anoint his feet with perfume. And so if you can, if you can picture this scene, yesterday in our, in our living room we were reading through the story and we were acting it out, and I was uncomfortable with my kids acting this out on me. On me. They started doing all the things in this story, and I was like, all right, we've got to stop. This is getting out of hand. Right? But imagine in, in this actual context, right, the weeping, the, the pervasive scent of perfume in Simon's courtyard, the scandalous kissing, touching, right? It, it would have sort of defiled any sense of decorum at that party. But strangely, as all of this is taking place and Simon and his friends are becoming increasingly uncomfortable, They notice that Jesus doesn't seem bothered. In fact, he actually seems to welcome this woman's actions, to welcome her presence and her company at this meal. And so in in verse 39 then, we're given insight, we're given access to Simon's internal monologue. What's he thinking? And it says, he thinks to himself, quote, you know, if this man were a prophet. If Jesus legitimately knew and understood the mind of God, the heart of God, the people of God, then he would at least know what kind of woman this is. And Simon's assumption is that he would be repulsed. He would push her away. He would keep appropriate distance from her. So Simon, as he's weighing things, right, I think we're, we're reaching a conclusion here. When it comes to whether Jesus is a prophet or not, Jesus has clearly turned out to be a disappointment. But at the very least, it seems, maybe Simon, you know, it's, it's a bit of a failure in terms of a dinner party, but Simon got the information he came for or, or he sent for. Right now he has enough information about Jesus to safely dismiss his claims, to write him off. He's got even more information to know he needs to keep his distance from this woman in town. Verse 39 is Simon's rendering of judgment on the matter. It's what Pharisees did best, right? They they scrutinized the law and they gave judgment and they practiced that in response. And so we, we might anticipate that the next move, the next verse, is going to be Simon cutting his losses. Simon calling for the servants to come in and clear the, the dinner plates and, and send away these guests. You know, to put an end to the controversy and the shame. But before he's able to do that, as he's thinking and rendering judgment in his head, verse 40 says that Jesus answered Simon. And that's pretty remarkable because Simon hasn't said anything. Not to anyone else, right? Jesus answers Simon's private judgments and he says this, Simon, 
I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, Simon said. So two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. I'd like to, I'd like to think of this, this mini parable as a kind of judgment test. It's a, it's a turning of the tables, I think. We're told back in verse 39 that Jesus has just failed Simon's test. Right? Jesus failed Simon's test for a prophet because Jesus didn't know what kind of woman was touching him. Didn't respond appropriately, at least, with that knowledge. So clearly he couldn't be a prophet. But somehow, somehow Jesus knows enough to answer Simon's thinking and judging, his unspoken thinking and judging, by telling this story, right? In a way that only a prophet could do. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, wait, 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 wait. Not so fast, Simi. I've got, I've got a test for you. And it's a test designed to measure the accuracy of your judgments. And the, the test is a simple one. He says, imagine, right, these two, two debtors. One's forgiven a small sum of money, maybe $5,000. And the other has $50,000 of debt erased. Right? Which one would respond with greater gratitude, with greater affection, with greater love? And in verse 43, Simon sort of cautiously but honestly acknowledges the, the right answer, the logical answer. Well, it's, it's got to be the one who had more forgiven. And Jesus gives him a passing grade. Jesus says, you, in this case, have judged correctly. But what matters, Simon, is not just judging the contents of, of fictional characters in a parable. Right? What matters is how we judge real people. And so can you judge correctly what's been put in front of your eyes? Right? Jesus, in verse 44, moves from parable to the present moment again. It says in verse 44, Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, 
her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I think that the key that unlocks this entire story and the way Luke presents it and what we're meant to notice about Jesus' actions in it, I think the key comes through in verse 44. And it's the question that Jesus asks Simon. Verse 44 says, Jesus says he, he turns to the woman, but he looks at Simon. And it's almost like Jesus uses his body as, as a bridge to connect these two people that would not otherwise be comfortable connecting with each other. And as he draws them together, Jesus says to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman who is at your table, in your courtyard? How do we think Simon answered that question? What's he thinking? Maybe he's thinking, of course I see her, Jesus. I'm a Pharisee, right? I have carefully calibrated radar for these kind of people. I saw her the minute she walked into the room. How could I not see the spectacle she's caused, the shame she's brought upon me? But of course, that's not the kind of seeing that Jesus is driving at. So Jesus gracefully, but also truthfully, opens Simon's eyes. And he, he lets Simon in. He, he begins to tell Simon what he has seen take place. And Jesus says, when I came into your home, Simon, you purposefully withheld your hospitality. You're welcome to me. Right? If, if you've ever spent time in the Middle East, you'll know that hospitality toward guests is everything. The most shameful thing you can do, doesn't matter who comes in your door, is to fail to welcome them. Right? I've met total strangers when I was there for, for four months, and they would welcome you in and share their table with you and make you a cup of tea. But even though Simon invited Jesus to his table, he, he purposefully withheld, even judged Jesus by giving Jesus no water for his feet to wash. No customary greeting or, or kiss of peace at the door. No, no oil on his forehead as a sign of kindness. But Jesus says, what you withheld, Simon, what you neglected in your judgment, this woman has generously provided to me. Can you see that, Simon? Simon 
what you construed as this woman's sin. Right? All the actions that you interpreted as signs of her disregard for holiness. The letting down of her hair. The kissing of my feet. The use of this costly perfume. These were not sinful acts. They were righteous acts of hospitality. And Jesus is saying, Simon, in fact, this woman has been saving you from disgrace the entire evening. She has spared you the dishonor of rejecting God's prophet in your midst. Do you see her? And so in verse 47, Jesus reaches his own judgment. He renders his own evaluation. He says, therefore, her many sins have been forgiven. They've been canceled. They've been wiped away like the dust on my feet. And you know that her sins have been forgiven. And she knows her sins have been forgiven because look at her actions. See how extravagantly she loves. Right in the parable, one who has been forgiven much loves greatly. That's my verdict on this woman, Simon. But there's, there's a bit that leaves, Jesus leaves hanging out there in verse 47 at the end. Right? I think he says, remember that story I told you a minute ago? Right? Have you seen anyone in this meal, in this evening, who's taken God's mercy for granted? Right? Is there someone at this table who loves little? And and the question that leaves is whether their sins will be forgiven. Whether they will experience the love and the freedom that this woman has. And so I think Jesus leaves sort of both a rebuke, but also an invitation hanging there in verse 47. In Luke being the great storyteller that he is, he doesn't give us Simon's response. Right? We're left wondering, does, does Simon choose to get his eyes checked? Does he go get some prescription lenses? Or does he stick with his own fuzzy vision? Does he decide that he's going to continue to make saints into sinners and make sinners into saints with his interpretations? I think maybe part of the reason Luke leaves this unanswered for us is because he wants us to think about how we'd respond. He draws us into the story. Do we see the people at our tables with all of these interpretive lenses of our own, or do we see them the way Jesus is able to see them? What are we missing? I think that correction of vision is part of the the practice of discipleship. 
It's part of the proclamation of the gospel. It's part of what Jesus has come to do, to give sight to the blind. And that's actually a theme that Jesus develops throughout his preaching. It's actually a theme that I think Luke pays particularly close attention to in his gospel. So one thing I'd I'd just offer to you as a practice, as you continue reading through the gospel, pay attention to these stories of sight. Pay attention to, to sight being restored. Pay attention to sight being taken away. How does the gospel change the way we see? And then secondly, a practice that I'd offer to you this morning is to think about how we could practice this around our tables. When you share those meals in someone's home this month, or when you find yourself down in the fellowship hall, or when you're at school, or when you're in the lunchroom at work, the next time you find someone sizing you up or you sizing them up, what if you took even five seconds and just prayed the simple prayer, Jesus, help me to see. Jesus, open my eyes to see as you see. Let me pray that that he would open our eyes together today. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have made the world full of your beauty. Lord, the sunshine, the snow today, mountains, trees, creatures of every kind. Lord, we we see these and we see your beauty in them. And yet you say the crowning achievement of creation are those made in your image. And yet how often our eyes and our sin distorts the way we see one another. Lord, heal our sight today. Amen.